When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Before this episode of the Final Word Podcast, another quick update from our friends at Brick Lane Brewing. We are grateful for Brick Lane support through the weekly episode, Storytime. Did you hear Daniel Norcross's wild 904 triumph? Are you kidding me? Start with Storytime 59 and then follow it up with Storytime 60. Totally worth it. And also, the daily episodes. Adam and Jeff have been super busy. You can find all of those, the daily episodes, wherever you listen to podcasts, and you can watch them on the Final Word Cricket Podcast YouTube channel. There are currently 23,000 subscribers. We'd love to get that to 25,000. So if you are not a subscriber to the Final Word Cricket Podcast YouTube channel, please stop by, check it out, and if you like it, subscribe, and then you'll never miss a video. In cricket, there are great partnerships. Podcasting is no different. It's the partnership between the show, Adam and Jeff, the sponsor, Brick Lane Brewing, and you, the listener. I'd use your name, but I don't know who you are. But thank you. In addition to subscribing to the YouTube channel, please check out Brick Lane Brewing on Instagram and Facebook. Say hello and tell them the final word sent you. You can order all your Brick Lane favorites at bricklanebrewing.com. It's a super easy way to get your hands on all of the various brews. Brick Lane Brewing, based and brewed in Melbourne, Australia. Great city, great beer. Thank you, Brick Lane Brewing, for being part of The Final Word. And as always, thank you for listening. That's enough from me. Now, Adam Collins, Jeff Lemon, and The Final Word. I had to go about it, write it out, and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. This is The Final Word Storytime with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. Your weekendly wander through the trails, the back lanes, the, the small mountain creeks of cricket history. Uh, this is what we do. It's been a, been a hectic week. It's been a news-filled week. It's been a World Cup week. It's been the week of Azim Rafiq at the parliamentary hearing. Um, all of that has been going on. And uh, so at the end of that week, we're going to, to settle a little bit. We're going to put the feet up we're gonna light our pipes i don't know who smokes a pipe like pipes are disgusting um <laughs> let's let's not do that and uh and, and and let us let us say hello to adam collins for this week's show yeah I, i'm gonna think of this next hour hour and a half or so as is a meditative experience i've not been able to do my yoga this week i've been a fraction busy with the hawthorne board election which is starting on friday or the, the ballot that starts on friday supporting in silk to, to join the hawthorne board and in, in a voluntary capacity of course but it does mean that a lot of hours that i would have otherwise been sleeping or doing other things have been mm-hmm. devoted to that and this is a 
a timely distraction. I get to talk mm-hmm. about cricket. I get to talk about answers we've prepared uh, and get to uh, enjoy ourselves well away from the politics of, of Melbourne football clubs. Mm-hmm. And just very quickly, we're going to have a, a few live shows in Australia. I'll just mention that off the top. If you haven't heard about it, the links for tickets will be in the show notes. We're playing in Melbourne on December 13th, Adelaide on December 14th, and uh, mm. God willing, Sydney on January the 4th. Uh, still nailing down details for that one. So come along. There will be stories. There will be a you know some version of story time. There may be there may be guests. There may be who knows what there'll be. We're still working it out, but that's all part of the fun. Yes, all in the show notes. The, the tickets for that. The Adelaide show. We have a bigger capacity than we had two years ago. Indeed, I think we've got about double the capacity. So that's quite exciting mm-hmm. and daunting. Of course, Adelaide is now a test match that people can go to, as opposed to Brisbane as opposed to the test matches last year when interstate travel wasn't a thing. I suppose this will be the first test match back where people can travel to, where the state borders are relatively free and easy, post-COVID, I mean. So that should mean a bit of a celebration, I reckon. The Adelaide Ashes test match is a, is a beauty at the at any old time, but the fact that people can go over from Victoria or New South Wales, and in turn, if you're planning on making that journey, why not come two days earlier rather than the night before and join us at the Uni Bar in Adelaide? just on the River Torrens there across the road. Mm-hmm. The River Torrens. I think of the River Torrens. I think of the Memorial Drive and, and Mark Woodford playing in the mm-hmm. Rio Classic or whatever it was called uh, <laughs> the week before the Australian Open way back when. And Memorial Drive, of course, directly across the road from Adelaide Oval, where we'll be from the 16th. But on the 14th, we'll be doing our thing. And on the 13th in Melbourne, back at the Seafarers, again, pretty chunky audience numbers. We o- get a- other way around. We're, we're, we're not going to Adelaide to Melbourne and then to Adelaide. That's what we're I said, isn't it? I, I think it's Adelaide. Melbourne to Adelaide. Yeah, I, think yeah. he, I think. Oh, I'm tired. I, think you said I could have said anything. I could have said. So the 13th is Melbourne. So we're doing that because Jeff's going to be at the Gabba. I can't be at the Gabba. Uh, you can't get me to the Gabba. Um, and you can't get me to spend 14 days in, in quarantine, whereas Jeff's a bit more mm-hmm. open-minded to these things. So no one will be going to that test match with the exception of Jeff. So if you're already in Melbourne, then it's kind of our homecoming show, so to speak. Mm-hmm. After a, a friend of mine sent me a text before saying, it's two years tonight since we were all at the Seafarers for your live show. And I re- replied by saying, in, in four weeks from now, we can, we can do it all again. Uh, Mm -hmm. So, uh, yes, do buy a ticket in the show notes. In all probability, the Melbourne show will sell out relatively swiftly, which is a good thing. So get on there quickly. And as for Adelaide, uh, it's going to be a belter with um, with a lot of people um, coming coming along, rather, from around the country. Mm -hmm. Yep, should be fun. So let us get straight into the Mm. show today. This is a show that is based around a game called Nerd Pledge. Sometimes it's called Nerd Pledge much more loudly, but today it's just called Nerd Pledge. It, it all depends on the vibe. It all depends, depends on, on whether I've teed you up, doesn't it? If I've teed you up, you yeah. tend to go for it. If you're hosting right. the show, you tend to play the straight bat. Mm. Mm. Well, sometimes you need a forward defence and yep. sometimes you need an inside out over backward point like Kane Williamson played in the T20 World Cup final. R- ridiculous. When I saw him shape for that shot, I thought extra cover because that's what it looked like. But no, it went over <laughs> backward point. And that was deliberate. There wasn't an edge. That he, he meant that. Nerd Pledge is a game that we play with the people on our Patreon page. It works like this. We do two shows a week sometimes. Sometimes we do nine shows a week. God knows. Sometimes we, if you include the live shows, we may do 11 shows a week. Anyway, <laughs> we need people to support this. And these wonderful people fund the show by sending us in contributions. But they don't send us round numbers. They send us very specific numbers. They use the decimal point and they make the contribution a number that relates to cricket in some way. And we have to work out what the number means. On this show, 
we're only doing revisits because we had a huge stack of them to get through and we will clear the decks today and then we'll be back to new numbers from next week. But uh, the revisits are the ones that we had to go out and we didn't get. So here is an example if you don't know what I'm talking about. Anthony Radford, who won the Brick Lane Slab last week with a contribution of $13.90. And so what does that mean? It means that 1390 is his number and that could mean anything. It could mean 139, it could mean... 13.9 13.9 it could mean 1.39 there are all kinds of things it could mean we looked at JJ Ferris taking 13 in an innings in a, a match which he played against about 22 other players we had a look at, at a few different things to do with 1390 they were not correct Anthony Radford said he had a great chuckle at the answer speaking of chuckle he says my pledge is actually again about Matthew Innes who is a legend from Broadford Cricket Club and for Victoria, and Darren Berry, who is nicknamed Chuck. That's the the Chuck bit of that whole setup. He says, it's not a Matty pledge for what you would think. And we went around on this. We went in circles on this. We we tried our hearts out on this and we, we couldn't get to it. And Anthony, bless him, has solved it for us. He has, and I'm glad he did because it it, it falls into the category uh, of a pledge that we we never would have got right. So I'm glad that Anthony uh, supplied the answer to us. It's kind of in step with the theme of last week's show. We talked about a couple of matches that were saved last week, including the 310 minutes that Robert Croft batted for at Old Trafford in 1998 against South Africa. Well, in this case, Anthony says it was Maddie's first game, Maddie Innes, Victoria, playing New South Wales at the G with some stars in both sides. New South Wales pile on the runs. Maddie gets a couple of wickets. Victoria bat big trouble at nine for 269. Maddie comes in at number 11 and puts on 118 with Chuck Berry, who goes on to make what I think was his highest Sheffield Shield score of 166. Maddie makes 27 from 126 balls against some big pressure from a decent bowling lineup, and they avoid the follow-on. Me and some hometown mates were watching the whole innings. Then he comes out in his first over and gets Michael Slater for a duck. There was about 500 people at the MCG that day, but I reckon it was louder than Anzac Day when Slats nicked to Berry behind. Uh, We were well lubricated by then, and we were ecstatic to say the least. But now the second innings, Victoria collapse again. They're likely to lose. And Matty Innes faces 13 balls for zero. And Brad Williams faces 31 balls. They hold out for a draw. So, in his first Shield game, Matty, our Broadford hometown hero, as a fast bowler, saves the game for Victoria by facing, combined across the two innings, 139 deliveries at number 11. The best day of cricket I ever had. Thank you, Anthony. Anthony, if you said 139, 26, for example, we might have had a chance of working out that it was 126 balls that he faced on Taboo, but I'm grateful you chucked in the extra 13 to thus up the pledge to 1390 because, yes, uh, 139 balls for 1390. I remember another part of Matt Innes' career, Jeff. I'm not sure if you recall this. I, I had mm-hmm. a bit of a Google, but couldn't find any evidence of it online, which probably, and I couldn't find it on my cricket either. I am convinced that in the 2000 mm-hmm. 2001 district final in Melbourne, there was a 10th wicket partnership that lasted all day and it determined the result. I mean, it was either Matt Innes batting in it or he was bowling in mm-hmm. the team that couldn't get good yet, number 10 and 11. 
I would suggest, given his prominence as a bowler at that point, it's unlikely he was one of the bowlers. So I'm guessing that Innes did bat for a very long time, like two or three sessions, to win mm-hmm. a district final in 2000, 2001. I'm sure uh, that Anthony can tell me if I've got that right or whether that's just a, a memory which has been... <laughs> uh, when I've seen this, I've, I've, I've sort of combined the two things together. I've just got a hunch that this wasn't the last <laughs> time that Innes batted for a long time to pull together a, an important result. It's, it's your version of the Berenstain Bears. You know, <laughs> did it really happen or, or did it happen in a different timeline? I, I swear it was spelt with an E, but now it's an A. Anthony... With 139 balls equaling 1390, that is your nerd pledge. And uh, as we told you last week, you win the chance to be beer Santa Claus. You get to give away a slab. You can give it to yourself. You can give it to someone else. Uh, Slab of Brick Lane, lovely brewery out of Melbourne. They do a lot of good things. Another good thing that they're doing is that you can get a free four-pack from them if you sign up to their mailing list. It's very easy to do. You give them your email. They'll be nice. They won't do anything weird with it. They won't sign you up to any, you know, weird Russian websites or anything. <laughs> uh, it's bricklanebrewing.com slash pages slash the final word. You'll need that URL because you won't find it on the website otherwise. We'll put it in the show notes as well. But uh, you go there, the first 200 people who do it, get a four-pack. A bunch of people have already done it listening to the show. And uh, why not if you can. That is Anthony Radford. Second number around is $1.80 from Chris Clark. We talked about Raul Dravid. Uh, we talked about Lionel Tennyson and we didn't get the answer right. Yes. So, so Chris has come back to us and said, in a similar event of coincidence, whilst discussing my nerd pledge of 180, you veered off and mentioned Tennyson. We did. We ended up over there, as you said before. His statue resides in my hometown's cathedral grounds. And here he is reading Wisdom in 1894. He sent the picture through. So uh, there's a nice tie back through there, Jeff. And uh... To be clear, the, the statue is of Alfred Lord Tennyson, um, <laughs> who was the grandfather of Lord Tennyson, the cricketer. They're different Lord Tennysons, but, you know, um, the lordships get, get passed down, I suppose. Yes, uh, that, that's exactly right. Like Lord Monkton, remember, remember Lord Monkton, the, the crazy oh, yeah. made himself a lord. The crazy climate change denialist who effectively was yeah, a self-made yeah. lord. He would often get brought out by like Tony Abbott to be like his special yeah. envoy on warming the planet, or words to that effect. You know, <laughs> um, uh, I think even Malcolm Turnbull might have flirted with Lord Monkton at one stage or another back in the days when he wasn't supporting action on climate change. The, the glory days of his first stint as opposition leader when he sold uh, his soul chunk by chunk by chunk. Anyway. Days. Uh, Jeff, you've got an answer for Chris on 180. I do. And so this also came from a clue from Chris, which said, he said, this is a combined stat and a hint can be found by looking at a cricket playlist on Spotify. Now, our listener, John O'Halen, made a playlist called the Final Nerd Playlist, I think, which has all, it has cricket related songs and songs we've talked about on the show and uh, have meant, you know, have used on the show and that sort of thing. On this playlist is a track by a band called Sick Bookies, which does fit in with our sports betting enthusiasts, I suppose. And that band happens to be a band that includes Chris Clark. And their song is called Wazim and Wacker. It's a very noisy kind of, there's a lot of, a lot of sound going on in this track. And so that was the only pair on the list, which means that that had to be the combination. And so I spent a lot of time going through the stats of Wazim Akram and Waka Yunus and talking to Chris a bit and working out how things combined. And here's where we got to. Over 
the course of their careers. In tests they played together, they averaged 22.12. So that's not the number. Over, like They collectively averaged a bit more than that, but when they played together, they averaged less. But in test matches that Pakistan won, their bowling average in concert was 18.01. So 180, Chris Clark's 180, is 18. In this case, 18.01. More impressive than that, I think, is their combined strike rate. When they won test matches... They took a wicket between them every 37.6 deliveries. So every six overs that they bowled collectively took a wicket when they won a test match. And that is what made them a pair that is still talked about with reverence to this day. Very nice, Jeff. Thank you, Chris Clark, for coming back to us and sending through that photo. Next is 318 Delo Fob. So Daniel was on the show for me that day and gave a, a long answer about the Army and Air Force game, Jeff. I, I must admit, I didn't get a chance to listen back to that, but I can imagine. That was, that was quite entertaining. But Thilo has uh, informed us that Daniel was wrong. Yeah, so the, the major clue here was that it happened in front of Jack Fingleton. And so Daniel was looking for matches that happened while Fingleton was touring, was not touring England to play, but was in England for other reasons. And there was an Army v Air Force game that involved the 318 that he could have been at in London. Eventually, we've worked out that Thilo's talking about the... Jack Fingleton's scoreboard, not Jack Fingleton himself, the scoreboard that was trucked up from the MCG to Manuka Oval. Uh, and that's the only place where cricket could have happened that Tilo was at, which he was at this game. Um, he gave us a few clues about uh, the fact that it was a player's stat at the time but wouldn't be any more and that the currency could be in Rand, so it needed to involve South Africa in some way. And we figured, but in the end... This is another one where we had to run up the white flag and Tilo came to the rescue. Yes, he did. So uh, Tilo, I mean, I, I love his love of Canberra. I love Tilo's love of our nation's capital. We both live in London now, but he, he's, a, he's a very committed Canberran. He's lived in a lot of places, Tilo. The first time we met him was in a pub in Taunton, wasn't it, Jeff? Mm-hmm. And he has since watched the AFL Grand Final with me. We watched Dulwich Hamlet together, and I expect we will do other sporting things together in the future. He played for the Final World Eleven uh, when we played the Oval Dream Boys to end the summer. Anyway, that all explains why he's gone back to Marnica. That's where this pledge relates. Uh, the 2015 World Cup game there when I were playing South Africa. Uh, Tilo was sat there on the grass hill beneath the scoreboard. South Africa were cruising to a monster total. Ireland were therefore a bit dull, Tilo said, and therefore we looked for entertainment via a player fielding on the boundary. As slight sledging, someone in the crowd read out their stats guru stats, uh, so I looked up his average. The other great memory was singing the player's name like the Yala Kolo chant from Liverpool. <laughs> And it worked with the alliteration of Riley Russo. Riley, 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 Russo. I assume that's what he's referring to. Um, Mm -hmm. But why 318? Uh, Well, it was Riley Russo's batting average uh, before that day in Canberra. So then it was 31.8. and and sadly, uh, as um, as uh, as uh, we've gone on to establish uh, when talking about Riley Rousseau and Kyle Abbott in the past on the show, they, they not long after that um, were out of uh, contention for South Africa when registering as Colpac players. So Rousseau only played 11 more one-day internationals. By that stage, his average was up at 40, uh, and that's when he pulled the pin. He's 32 years of age now, 
though, and back in South Africa. And there was some news reports last week, Jeff, that Riley Russo might make himself available to play for South Africa again, mm. which is pretty cool. So just to be clear, the reason why they're permitted to do this is that if they were coal packs, which stopped this year as a consequence of Brexit, as South African players in the, in the county system are now playing as internationals, which doesn't mean they're precluded from playing for South Africa. So that kind of captures... Riley Rousseau, Kyle Abbott, Duane Olafir is the other one that stands out. There are others, but they'd be the three that would be the most likely, I reckon, to get another opportunity. At an absolute pinch, Simon Harmer. I'm not sure if Simon Harmer's playing domestic cricket in South Africa at the moment. But, yeah, there might be a second coming for Riley Rousseau. He might be able to add uh, to that tally of one-day internationals. But then in 2015, uh, when he made that century, his batting average was 31.8. There you go, Tiller. Uh, one, another of those answers that we could have done this show for five years and probably not figured it out by the end. The next up, Robert Dinsey, a.k.a. Robert Disney, a.k.a. Robert Dinsbury, depending on the time of the week, the uh, direction of the wind and the position of the tides. 460 was Robert's number. So he said that it was 460, but it would now have gone up to 470. <laughs> and so I looked at people who had recently taken their 47th one-day international wicket, naturally. He said, you were definitely in good areas looking for career totals that went up from 46 to 47 around the time of my follow-up message, but it was not in international cricket as this player has somehow... A travesty never played for his country. Emphasis mine. Yes, uh, James Hildreth, the man who often gets dubbed the unluckiest cricketer in England for never having played for his country, brought up his 47th first-class century in July this year. Uh, He made it against Surrey. He turned 37 this season. And look, to be honest with you, he hasn't had a great couple of years with the exception uh, of that century. The season for Somerset, as we know, in, in in the divisional phase, fell off a cliff a little bit. I think they started... The divisional phase in top spot, maybe second spot, Jeff. And by the end of it, they were they were right down the bottom of that first group. Hildreth was an England player all the way through the junior ranks, of course, but that's kind of where it stopped. He was a bit of a prodigy, uh, went to the right school and, and that kind of thing. And then he was a big part of the 2005 series as well, uh, the Ashes series, albeit as a subfielder, remembering, of course, that, that England uh, used that loophole quite well. We all know about Gary Pratt, but it was James Hildreth who caught Ricky Ponting at Lords sort of famously for him. His highest score was an unbeaten, or is, I should say, he's not retired yet, an unbeaten 303 in 2009, which is the earliest triple century in England and the highest score ever in Taunton. So it was April 2009 when he made that triple. All told, 18... What what do you mean the earliest? Well, earliest in the season, sorry. So so Sam Robson has the earliest century ever in an England season because he made Mm -hmm. a tonne in March when they started the university games in March that year. God. So, uh, so, but it's for triples or the highest score, um, the mm-hmm. earliest triple uh, is Hildreth. You see players um, in, in the T20s, you know, the ball gets hit in the outfield and it comes back and they dry the dew off it. If you were playing in March, you'd be chipping the ice off the ball. Oh, I mean, they are. A, I mean, it's an, horrendous. An Andy Dufresne rock hammer or something. <laughs> well, it, it genuinely, we, we were at, uh, we went to the Oval this year to watch Middlesex Surrey 
have their warm-up game, which was the Easter weekend. <laughs> Ironic. I, well, yeah, totally. I mean, I think, um, didn't Timmy Murta tell us about it when we interviewed him, saying uh, he is too old to play in those games, so he bowled his overs and <laughs> sat upstairs. Tim Murta, who, by the way, has been uh, appointed the interim captain of the Middlesex for next year, um, with Peter Hanscom missing the start of the season. So Murta, at age 40, will play on and, and be the leader of that club again. But, yeah, I think that might have been the last couple of days of March. Not a first-class game, of course. You know, if they were smokers against the non-smokers or a had it been, mm-hmm. you know, the, yep. the, the, jazz, the, the jazz artists against the, the philanthropists of Philadelphia, mm-hmm. I'm sure it would have been first-class mm-hmm. status, but um, this wasn't to be. But, yeah, I mean, it's horrendous. I mean, it's truly fucking shocking. This comes back to my idea that they should play in March in parts of the world that are conducive to it and start the one-day trophy there. You might remember, Jeff, I gave you that long spiel mm-hmm. about how you can fix a domestic season. Let them spend March in the Caribbean or in Cape Town or in the UAE or wherever and play competitive cricket and then come back to England in April when it's, you know, a little bit better and and crack off, crack on there. <laughs> There's this little gain by, by playing practice matches in the final week of March. Anyway, back to Hildreth. 18,000 first-class runs at 41. Uh, 1,600 of those in, in 2015 to lead the country but yeah he was 31 by then and that's kind of when I first became aware of just how prolific he was and even then the sort of suggestion was well yeah Hildreth's there in the wings but he's 31 are we really going to kind of invest in him the good news is that he's at peace with all of this now he knows that he didn't quite nail it when there were the, you know, the glimmer of opportunity or the half opportunities to get selected that they tended to coincide when he had rough patches for Somerset and that's just the way it goes for some players he can look back fondly on the competition he did with Somerset back in 2019, the one-day cup final at Lords when they were chasing 240-odd against Hampshire. It was Hildreth, uh, unbeaten on 69. Nice, who, who got the job done there. I think they won by about five wickets. But yes, uh-huh. the, the last two years haven't been particularly good for him this year, apart from the century. To bring up his 47th ton, there was only one other score above 50, but I'm pretty sure he's got at least one more year on his contract. So uh, with Somerset there and thereabouts, you know, he still could finally realise that dream of them of them winning the championship for the first time. Uh, they're going to still be a strong side in the next couple of years. All right, that is James Hildreth for Robert Dinsey. Next up is Jack Firth on $6.26. We talked about Dennis Lilly in the centenary test, the start of the centenary test, and Jack says, I'm glad I gave you the opportunity to talk about it again. Is it the most frequently mentioned match in story time? Yes, I think we could safely say it is, right? Yeah, well, I'm trying to think what else would be up there um, other than the centenary test. Calcutta 2001. Calcutta uh, 01, but isn't it, there's some, there's some rare, there's some unusual games that we've come back to quite a bit too, aren't there? Um, yeah, I mean, the first test match a bit, you know, first 1977. Test first test match. The, the, the test Maybe Bradman MCG 37. Yes, 30, 30, yes January 37, uh, the Bradman 270 not out gets a mention quite a bit. Uh, we've 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 been to the Oval in 1934 quite often as well, haven't we? And 1938, yeah. and 1938, uh, with 1934, mm-hmm. of course, with Ponsford and Bradman, and 1938 uh, with Hutton. So yeah, there are a few, but I reckon yeah, the centenary tests have have them covered on, uh, on the whole. I would say probably. So uh, he said, my number goes quite a bit further back than that. It's a career stat of a true all-rounder, but relates to something he never even attempted in a test match. Not a cap number, but very much a dusty old bastard era. Mm. So we mentioned just a minute ago Alfred Lord Tennyson. Uh, We mentioned Chris Clark sending us a note about his statue in the gardens of the Lincoln Cathedral. We mentioned his grandson, also Lord Tennyson, the cricketer, a very proper posho Eton type who was wounded three times in the First World War, ended up captaining Hampshire. 
And while captaining Hampshire, he covered part of the career, certainly not all of the career, of one George Brown, who played for Hampshire over a period spanning 26 years between 1908 and 1933. So why did Jack Firth want us to look at 626, which is the number of first-class wickets that George Brown took, Mm -hmm. and decipher why this record was unusual? Why it was unusual, Adam, was because of George Brown's other job. So did everything, made 25,000-plus first-class runs, 3,700s, and took 626 first-class wickets. Um, Jack also directed me to read the um, biography of him, the, the short bio written by John Arlott, where it, it listed other things he could do, like ripping a pack of cards in half with his bare hands and stuff like this. Apparently, he was one of those you know, massive units who was probably about five foot eight, but seemed huge at the time. Um, he was great in the but, pub, great at celebrity head. Yeah. You know, he had all sorts of tricks. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, knew how to ride a horse backwards. Um, he'd sit backwards and he'd make the horse go backwards. It was incredible. So, so uh, he, apparently he also had the longest throw of a cricket ball in England before World War One. Put that on your tombstone. Longest throw I love before the, caveat, the war. Before, before the war. Yeah. How far? Well, frankly, I feel... I feel that you should, if you've got it before the war, you should have it after the war because nobody's, like, everyone's had their arms lopped off and stuff by then. You should you should still have the longest time. Yeah, in, ration, in, in, in a time of rations, if you haven't got the, the interwar period covered as well, what's fucking wrong with you? <laughs> Maybe he just got malnourished by all the ration stuff and his, his big arms wasted away. But what is weird about his 626 first-class wickets? What's weird is that you look at his record, pretty good, average of 29, strike rate of 50, doing very well. He never bowled a ball in seven test matches. He played seven tests and never bowled. Why? Because he was doing something else. Because he was the bloody wicketkeeper. Because he was a wicketkeeper through most of his career, but whenever he felt like it, he took the gloves off, gave them to someone else and had a bowl and picked up 626 wickets in so doing. This is not, you know, Mark Boucher bagging a couple that are caught at mid-wicket when he decides to have a trundle when they've already used nine bowlers that day. Old mate George Brown, who was tall, bowled quick, bowled rapid, took hundreds of wickets and also kept wicket whenever he wasn't bowling. And so when he got called up to play for England, he was England's wicketkeeper and was not asked to bowl. I also got directed as part of this exchange to a scorecard that involves George Brown uh, that Arlott referred to, and it is an absolute belter. So it's of an innings where Hampshire were bowled out for 15 in 1922 by Warwickshire, (laughs) which surely, I, I didn't look up whether it's a club record, but I'm tipping it must be. I'm just bringing up the 15 here. Uh, in my browser and it looks as though George, yes indeed, he made a golden duck batting at 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6 so Lord Tennyson made 4, the skipper, and Brown uh, mm-hmm. made a golden Led duck from coming the front. after him so they were part of a, an inauspicious day for, for Hampshire mm, Well, you, you've got to have the good ones, uh, the bad ones in order to have the good ones so that is the 664 as sent through to us by Jack Firth and Jack you are beer Santa for this week because Anthony won it for last week. You get to give away the slab this week. So keep an eye on your email. That will come in from Brick Lane and you can uh, send someone a case of their tasty brews. Hi, my name's Kate Cross and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam and Jeff. Next up, 
Jack France, $2 even, so 2.00, but it is still a nerd pledge. Uh, it was another Norcross mm. answer. The original clue was, oh, my birthday. Um, his birthday's in January, says Jack. And in order to give us a bit more of a clue, he said this number is both three consecutive scores and a cumulative score, and you or Adam might have been at this match. I had to suffice with listening on 774. I was not old enough to choose what to do on my birthday. It was not a day for the batters. Yes, I wasn't there on the 16th of January, 97, at the cricket ground when Australia played a one-day against Pakistan. I was playing an RM Hatch Shield game for Mount Waverley. I can't remember who against, but I know where I was and, and what I was doing because we were all told at one point, hey, watch the TV, Anthony Stewart's on a hat trick. And and uh, and uh, as um, as Jack says, it's it's one hat trick that he that he could have seen, uh, but he didn't because he wasn't there. But it was his birthday, so Anthony Stewart's day in the sun, and really was in the sun. It was a glorious day in Melbourne. Does the fact you saw it at that game make it an RM hatch trick? Yes, very good, very good, Jeff. I like the way you're going there. Um, we didn't win a lot of games for Mount Waverley in the RM hatch. I don't I don't think my recollection was that we were a fairly fairly modestly talented team. It was rep <laughs> cricket, but only just. Yes, yeah, so Anthony Stewart, I mean, I, I remembered some of this, but not all of it. I certainly remembered the hat trick. Now, this goes to the clue. Ejaz Ahmed, two. Mohamed Wazim, two. Moen Khan, zero. Jack's number, two, zero, zero. And cumulatively, oh, two. Oh, good, so yeah. That, that, all, that, all, that all tally. So all caught behind the wicket. It was Mark Taylor who took the third catch, wasn't it? Um, he was still captain of the one-day team that year. I think that was Mark Taylor's last summer. As a one-day player, I reckon he might have... Oh, he might have played in 97 as well, but it was getting towards the end of his one-day career. Uh, it was in the middle of his form slump, actually. It was when Taylor couldn't buy a run uh, in early 97 before he uh, went to England and made that century at Edgbaston and, and the whole career got turned around. Yeah, so Pakistan got to 181 for nine. Uh, Anthony Stewart finishes with five for 26. Uh, Inzamam Al-Haq top scores with 61, so 64, sorry. But yeah, it was a really tough day for batsmen, as Jack mentions in his clue, because Australia only gets to their target of 182 with three balls to spare. And that's because coming in down at number nine was Andy Bickle, who made 16 not out. At that point, they were 148 for seven and, and kind of cooked. But who did he have with him? Michael Bevan, made in heaven, 79 not out, doing as he always did. But yeah, it was obviously a fun pitch. Wazzy Macram um, took... Uh, four for 25, and they're up against Wazim and Wakar and all the rest on that tour. Um, but here's the thing. Anthony Stewart, five for 26, player of the match. Because it was the final group game Australia played of that tri-series with the West Indies, West Indies and Pakistan making it through to the final, which was a, you know, a tiny mini little crisis at the time. You know, Australia had been in the World Cup final in the March of 96 and couldn't even make the tri-series final in the January of 97. And it was the prompt for a bunch of changes to be made to that team. In fact, that might have been uh, how Taylor lost his spot as captain. Anyway, whatever it was, due to the changes that got made, uh, Anthony Stewart lost his spot as well. Indeed, he never played for Australia again. It's, it's remarkable when you look at his record. Eight wickets at 13.6, including a hat-trick and player of the match in his final game of the series, but never selected again. And within 12 months, he was also out of the New South Wales team, out of the squad entirely. He did make a bit of a mini comeback with the Canberra Comets in, uh, in the Mercantile Mutual a season or two wow. after that, but never really threatened to get back in. But even looking at his list day numbers, 45 wickets at 22, an economy rate of 4.3, 
and that was it. I mean, it seems very strange to yeah. me that, and he went on to be an administrator in, in New South Wales and I think in New Zealand as well. Yeah, strange that a player who a lot of people would remember as a 23-year-old bursting onto the scene with a hat-trick in his third game for Australia. It was three and out, never got the chance again. But Jack France, on his birthday, was uh, listening on the radio uh, when he went bang, 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 Ijaz Ahmed, Mohamed Wazim, Moin Khan. Well, you would rather play three games, take a hat-trick and have a great record than not play three games, take a hat-trick and have a great record. I suppose he got to be part of a classic with Michael Bevan, more recently known of the Masked Singer. Um, in, in the UK, they go on Strictly what? Come Dancing. In a, yeah, didn't you know this? He, he was, this, was, this was like a year ago or something. This, this TV show where, where they have people come out in big costumes and they sing and the judges have to try to guess, you know, they're a celebrity of some sort, but they have to guess who it was. How, Michael Bevan did. How, had, a, how, had a decent set, they, set of pipes. How, how, they, how do they guess it was Michael Bevan? How do they... Uh, no one they guessed cl- it was Michael Bevan, yeah. Are they cl- I mean, well, cause if you think, I mean, you think it is true. Don't get me wrong, Michael Bevan, big, cele- big celebrity, you know, 15, 20, years ago but At if Michael time. Bevan just started yep. singing on I mean you'd have no I mean of all the yep. celebrities out there how are you meant to know it's Michael Bevan he could probably be busking in Rundle Mall with, with <laughs> no mask on at all and most people wouldn't guess who it was but um this this was kind of what the Ram Raider because because this is a show uh mostly watched by a younger audience when it was revealed they were like it's Michael Bevan and the internet was just full of all these like kids going who the is Michael Bevan? Um, and we're like, excuse me. It was it was a real age crisis day for those of us um, whose 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 youth is starting to depart us. Um, but it does make me wonder whether you could have a version of the show that's like the masked batter, like where you dress them up in a costume and send them out, and you've got to guess by you know the, the flourish of the cover drive or how they play the late cut who it is. Oh, Jeff. Like, oh, Je- oh, Jeff. Oh, Jeff. Oh, Jeff. Oh, Jeff. You've stumbled right into something that we might be doing on the show. You've not been reading your emails very closely, have you? We might be doing a version of this in the lead up to mm. Christmas with Brick Lane Brewing. Oh yeah, that's 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 an impersonation. That's an impersonation game. I'm talking about the real deal. Like if they sent players out there with you know all of their particulars covered up, could you work out who it was just from how they played at the crease? You know, yeah, I'd, okay. I'd like to think we'd have a decent. So if you shot, put a, so you put a hood over their head. Um, you are, uh, what else? All, all, uh, all distinguishing goggles. Yeah, all distinguishing Maybe some features. Platform shoes. Uh, yeah, are all taken away. No mannerisms, so you mm-hmm. can't have sort of Justin Langer with spittle at the side of his mouth or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Purely, maybe that's what Justin Langer should do to capture the hearts and minds of the Australian people as he tries to campaign yeah. to be reappointed as as coach. Mm-hmm. Yeah, get this going, um, and this could be the sleeper hit. Of the summer, uh, the feel-good hit, if you will, <laughs> as per Queens of the Stone Age. Uh, anyway, that's Jack France. That's the two zero zero. Uh, next up is Michael Fallon, mm. who won the Brick Lane a couple of weeks ago. We have a lot of Brick Lane winners on this show. Four sixty is the original clue, and it was about something that happened in the crowd, right? So. This is, this is roughly how this pans out. He says, The number happened in a game which I'd argue is best remembered for something that happened in the crowd. Uh, he enjoyed our story that went down the Bill Clinton Secret Service detail um, <laughs> and, and, and other things. He also got the number wrong and said he realised it should have been four, six, nine. That's, that's, so that's Clinton. Was, that's Clinton's calling yeah. card. <laughs> he, Bill Clinton, he, four, I'm six, here, nine. I'm here, four, six, nine. Uh, have, you been watching you the, um, have you been watching American Crime Story? 
No, I can't say I have. It's it's worth it. It's, it's the okay. it's the Bill Clinton impeachment scandal. Uh, oh right. And just I mean, I, you know, of course you got to take these dramatizations with a a little bit of a pinch of salt. But um, mm-hmm. even if you know, even if they're just turning up the dial ten or so percent, this guy was a fucking mad rooter, like a proper, <laughs> like a proper, Hugh Tayfield, so. proper <laughs> mad rooter. Bill Clinton just couldn't, just couldn't, he just didn't, just couldn't put it away. Just didn't know how what? to put it away. Modern medicine saved him from being the uh, the Len Hutton of his time. <laughs> I think you mean the Wally Hammond. The Wally Hammond. I always get them mixed up. I've defamed Len Hutton so many times on this show by confusing him with Wally Hammond. Len, I apologise to Len Hutton's family. Uh, he was his he cock's was, fine. I'm, as, far, as far as we know, he he went to his grave with all his pieces in order. Um, Wally Hammond. We cannot say the same. Look. All right. So so. The number was supposed to be 469 and it was to do with wickets but it wasn't a bowling analysis of 9 for 46. It was a batting collapse of 9 for 46 and this is what we somehow managed to work out. And you'll remember this batting collapse, Adam, because it happened at Marnica Oval in One Day International between Australia and India. Yes. Remember when India's chasing? Kane Richardson. Yep. Kane Richardson does the business when they've had a massive partnership, they're chasing 330-odd, and then it all falls apart right at the end. Yeah. And you could also argue that something that happened in the crowd that night is remembered more fondly because this is a match that was mistaken for the PM's 11 at one point, but in the crowd that night was professional lunatic Mark Latham (laughs) wearing a pair of oversized shorts and a filthy polo shirt. Oh. Uh, and he was spotted in the crowd by our uh, listener and correspondent and friend, Dave. Just Dave. Just, you know, why Why have a last name? Canberra's Madonna, Dave. Cher, Dave. Mm. Uh, and, and, and immortalised on the internet for that night. The part that Dave couldn't fit in the tweets was that Mark Latham was also wearing like a really saggy bucket hat as well with like a, you know, a real floppy brim. Um, so that... that that completed the outfit. So that happened on the night of the 469, which was 4649, and that is what Michael Fallon's referring to in his clue. And that deserved to win the slab, even though we didn't figure it out till a couple of weeks later. Oh, yeah, very good. I, yeah, personally, that was an important night for me too. That's, that's the first game of international cricket I called on the radio for the ABC. Uh, I remember doing mm-hmm. that game up at Canberra, so that's that was that was nice. I think I was on air for the majority. In the shipping container with with Tim yes, Gable. Yes, yes, that's right. I think it was. Uh, I got lucky in that Richardson's last spell. I think he took four wickets in three overs, and I was on air for all of them, uh, which was kind of cool. Nice to be in the highlights mm-hmm. and all that when you're on commentary. And I seem to recall, Jeff, we had a pretty good night out, didn't we? We went across the road to to public with Bucky and um, and and, and uh, stayed there for hours and hours. So that was fun. But yeah, that, that is the night, isn't it? So for a long time, Dave mm-hmm. thought it had happened at the PM's 11 that year. And Mark yeah. Latham would always go back at him saying, I wasn't at the PM's 11. I was race yeah. baiting somewhere in Blacktown yep. or something like that, you know, I was I was yep. busy on Sky News that night with Alan Jones or whatever, whatever the whatever his excuse yeah. for for making. I, a, a I was, quid was I was painting crude images on the <laughs> windows of shops in Lakemba. Yeah, you know, yeah. I, <laughs> I, was, I was otherwise occupied. I was otherwise busy. So. I, I've got I was, an alibi. I've got an alibi. Uh, and, I was losing a defamation lawsuit and getting in an altercation <laughs> with a taxi driver. And this always perplexed Dave. I'm pretty sure Dave spent some time like the fuck. I didn't fucking imagine that. It clearly happened. It was clearly you, and he couldn't quite square it until some years later he realised, oh, actually, it wasn't at the PM's 11 that year. It was at the One Day International. So he did this big confession on Twitter saying, 
I'm sorry, everybody. I have to reveal that mm-hmm. it was actually at this One Day International, not the PM's 11, mm-hmm. and resoundingly was supported for this confession to a person. Everybody said it remains the PM's 11. Exactly. And it will be the PM's 11 forevermore. Exactly. You, you can't take that back. Once that's out there, you know, it's like you just dropped the World Cup. Yeah, sure, Steve Orr didn't say it, but... We'd all rather live in a world in which he'd said it. That's right. And, and the fact that he owned up to it and fronted up to it and, and the mystery was solved uh, and, uh, and we all got on with life. So thank you to Michael Fallon for letting us revisit the night that Mark Latham wore an oversized pair of shorts and a filthy T-shirt. Uh, Simon Ward, our next revisit. Polo shirt. Polo, Polo shirt. My apologies. Polo that makes shirt. the filthiness more egregious in some ways. Yeah, you know? he, he probably was hoping to get into the corporates with the collar. He probably thought, if I wear a collar, <laughs> they'll let me into the uh, Robert Menzies room. Sorry, mate, you're not, you're mm-hmm. not getting into the Robert Menzies room dressed like yeah, that. But unfortunately rolled down a hill and into a ditch on, on his way to the ground, you know, presumably, or like crawled in under a gate on his stomach or something. Next up, Simon Ward. Yes. 243. Uh, you talked about the dusty old bastard Fred Barrett, uh, Simon was glad to be introduced to. He said he towers above Larwood in some quaint photos in Duncan Hamilton's fine book. Uh, also nice to hear the one and only, which I've always had a, a guilty liking for. Uh, a friend of mine said Chesney Hawks was a good sport at a gig in York when their stag party turned up with a Scottish groom dressed in women's clothing. Uh, I actually went for the number 243 in honour of my local London bus but also realised it related to a memorable match you've since mentioned and for which the other key numbers were 40 and 4. Okay. Well, first of all, Simon, I'm glad you enjoyed uh, learning about Fred Barrett. I certainly did. Right, so 243, this is where I got to and I was so chuffed with myself, Jeff, and I spent so much time going through this and I'm, I'm a bit worried I've still fucked it up, but let me tell you the story anyway, hey? How's that sound? I've I gone- think you're right. You think I'm right? Hmm, Let, let's go I think through you're it. Right, I've, I've got an inkling. Yeah. Okay. So the, the Benson and Hedges final of 1989 uh, was when Essex made 243 and lost. Mm-hmm. Uh, but John Lever playing for Essex at age 40, thus the 40 and the 243 that he refers to there in the clue, mm-hmm. took two for 43. So yeah, that kind of works, doesn't it? He's 40. Yeah. Took two for 43. I quite like it. And he, uh, and he bowled the last ball of the match. And he bowled the last ball of the match, which uh, Eddie Hemmings. Uh, hit for four with the crooked groin, wasn't it? So we yep. talked so about. So he couldn't run. They need. I think they needed three, two or three to win, and he knew that he couldn't run up and back. So he knew that he had to try to hit a boundary. That's right. That's right. I think you've talked about this game before, haven't you, Jeff? I've got yeah, we talked about Eddie Hemmings uh, a couple of months ago. Ah, maybe. that's why. Um, that's why. Yeah, 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 yeah. Bit of deja vu there. Well, sticking with John Lever, though, let's tell his story. The perfect test taboo thirteen years earlier against India at Delhi. Well, I say the perfect. It could have been better, but um, not much better than seven for 46 in the first innings and three for 24 uh, in the second. It was on the back of that form that he got picked for the centenary test ahead of Mike Selby. Boom, boom, the- centenary test, Claxon. <laughs> Indeed. And he bowled the first over of that test match and, and picked up the first wicket, four for the test. Became an Essex great. He was such a part of their success through the 80s. You... you- often read about uh, John Lever. Derek Pringle uh, wrote about him quite a lot in his brilliant autobiography uh, a couple of years ago. Lever did get back into the test team as late as 1986 when they were having that shocking run when they got pumped by um, New Zealand and India in, in the same summer. But by 1989, as I said before, he was, he was 40 years of age and in yet another cup final, um, they were up against knots. Uh, it was the 55-over competition at the time. We were joking about this um, 
Jeff uh, in the pub with someone or another uh, recently thinking about when this competition, and one day internationals for that matter, was 60 overs a team. I mean, imagine that now. Imagine trying to play 110 or 120. hours. I mean, especially the way 50 over cricket's played now and how long it takes to get through a limited overs international. Imagine it was 60 overs a team. I mean, this you'd have to start at nine in the morning to have it done in time for the six o'clock news. Even then you wouldn't. You'd still be playing extra time, I'm, I'm sure. Anyway, this was the 55 over era. Just milking singles in the 48th over before they, they get to happy hour in the 54. <laughs> yeah, that, Jesus that's it. Christ. That's it. So I mentioned Essex made 243. 243 for seven, to be precise, with Alan Lilly making 95 not out and a young Mark War uh, making 41. That was Mark War's season with Essex when he was... As he wrote in his book, uh, when he finished up as an Australian player, he spent the whole... As, as he, in inverted commas, wrote in his yes, book. Yes, yes, yes. Not, not, not one of the great biographies, uh, it must be said. That He was furious that he wasn't picked on that Ashes tour in 89 uh, and took it out on the Australians when, when they came to Chelmsford. John Lever, therefore, got 11 overs out of 55 instead of 10. Uh, he picked up fellow veteran Chris Broad and Paul Pollard, who uh, is an umpire that I've been uh, seeing a, a bit of like recently. I'm not seeing Paul Pollard. <laughs> wow. I'm not, as you, the you, words came you out You and Rachel have a, <laughs> your, your relationship starting to evolve. <laughs> let's, invite in, let's, invite in, uh, let's invite in umpires who've been overseeing uh, the England-New Zealand women's series of late. But no, uh, not, not to... Can, can, you, can you tell us how good he is at putting the finger up? Yes, exactly. <laughs> Well, not not quite as good, perhaps, as the other man in that game who was influential, Tim Robinson, final word favourite, another umpire who who oversaw an international this year, didn't he? He was uh, he was doing the games when all the umpires got pinged for COVID. They brought in uh, Tim Robinson, uh, the hero of the '85 Ashes, who made 86 and thus won the trophy for knots. Uh, it's a great Essex team, though. Gooch, Pringle, Jeff Miller, Neil Foster. Uh, but it wasn't to be for them this day. And as I say, mm. I, I mean, I think I'm right. Because you know two, four, three, and forty, but I can't see a four. four um, is what Eddie Hemmings hit off the last ball? To win. Oh, four's the last ball. Four's the. I've, I've, there you go. I've, I've overthought it. You're right. Four on the mm-hmm. last ball, the end of a classic final. There you go. The B and H, 1989. I, I mentioned Andy Dufresne earlier. Uh, imagine if the umpires were COVID out, COVIDed out, and they accidentally brought in Tim Robbins. You know, they could. They, they, they had they had some wires crossed, and Tim Robbins had to come in and umpire. Um, I'm sure he'd do a passable impersonation. Uh, so, okay, that's Simon Ward. Uh, Shane Fag is up next. One fifty four was the number we talked about. Adam Gilchrist at Melbourne in a one day in 1999. Uh, Shane's replied and said, Gilly has so much meaning for me. This is a beautiful story, by the way. He's my wife's favourite player. And that World Cup was how the two of us met. Picture a seedy Brisbane piano bar on a Friday night, the Criterion, a lovely young lady asking a bunch of dudes to move because she's trying to watch the cricket on the telly. I spy this conversation and think to myself, wow, we strike up a cricket conversation and I nearly knock a bloke out trying to demonstrate why good technique and practice are the only reason why girls don't throw like guys. Fast forward to a classic debaucherous Australia Day house party and the rest is history. What a wonderful story, Shane. So... The final hint is that the number is not one number and you won't find it in a cricket stat. Think more and use your deductive powers to judge how this player was criminally underplayed. <laughs> mm. So there's a hint there. Yes, Shane, there's some symmetry with this uh, this clue and, and one we had recently for the same player, actually. Uh, the LAW Law, Stuart Law, 154, has this one test 
after 54 runs. Or one mm. test match and 54 one days when they really meant something, if you uh, want to go down that path. Um, but yes, I think it would probably be in relation to the fact that he only got to bat once for Australia, unbeaten on 54. Yeah, as I said, we've had this formulation before. Jim Carnegie uh, had 540 to get us to the same place a couple of months ago. And yeah, those, those 54 one-day internationals were before T20s were a thing. But when he played his one test match, he was replacing Steve Waugh against Sri Lanka. Came in at 496 for four and, and made that unbeaten 54 with Ricky Ponting. But the problem for Law was that Ponting made 96 and Ponting was younger and Ponting was a, a prodigy and and Ponting uh, was the player they, they opted to stay with. They put on 121 when Ponting was out league before and just, uh, to quote Mercedes Corbin, uh, Mercedes Corbin, was that a name again? Uh, Cor- Corby? Corby, Corby, Chappelle Corby. Corbin, jeez, that's a, bit, that's a bit of a stretch saying it. I don't think... Oh, I don't, Mercedes <laughs> Corbin. <laughs> I just want to say that really. Ah, just! Um, they didn't even listen to bloody evidence! <laughs> yes, I've watched that on YouTube a few times over the years. Now, where are we? I'm just! It could have been anybody's many kilograms of marijuana in my <laughs> boogie board bag. That was, that's what really topped it for me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, right, so um, Australia win by an innings, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, by this stage, Stuart Law was in the Australian one-day team. He made 72, a really important 72 against the Windies in the semi-final of that competition. Uh, With... Michael Bevan. He did, that's right. That's right. Bevan and, and, uh, and Law getting Australia out of trouble after Kirtley Ambrose. Cut sick, I think is the, the official term at the mm-hmm. start of that game. Uh, just made one century against Zimbabwe uh, in the quadrangular series of 94-95, but very handy uh, before kind of trailing off before um, the 99 World Cup. He missed out on selection for that squad. Captain Queensland, though, to five. Sheffield Shields from 94-95 onwards when he broke the drought. Uh, remarkable 79 first-class centuries. 30 for Essex, the club we were talking about a moment ago. 23 for Lancashire. And a lazy 25 for Queensland as well. By the end of his career, of course, he had British citizenship. He wasn't trying to play for England, but he was able to play as a local. Uh, indeed, he's been working for the BBC in the last few weeks. He has been moved on by Middlesex. He had one more year in his contract at Lords, but after their, their poor season, they've decided to part company with Stuart Law. But yes, former coach of Bangladesh, former coach of Queensland, Land. Uh, I'm sure he'll be uh, overseeing other teams in the future and did play that one test match for 54 runs. Shane Fagg, that's your number. Righto. Thank you, Shane. Kieran Costello next up. The number is 236. We didn't really look at St. Gavaskar's 236 because we've done so before. We were told it was a match in which a couple of unusual things happened and I was looking at team scores for games with unusual things. Uh, I didn't quite find it, though. Yeah, so Kieran's come back to us saying, in hindsight, my original clue was too vague, but Jeff was on the right track looking at team totals. He just didn't mention the game in question. The important part of the clue was that these are two rare occurrences, and you can see them both on the scorecard, but one is more immediately obvious than the other. Each have appeared only a handful of times in all test cricket, but happened on the same day in this test, including a passion shared by the final word's own... R. Ashwin. Mm, okay. All right. Well, this, this sorted it out for me. This is about the series in which Andrew Hilditch was out, handled the ball after there had been a run out of the non-striker in Melbourne in 1979. Bear with me on this. It's the first test. 
Pakistan allowed their World Series cricket players uh, to play in this series while Australia did not, so the Australians were already shitty before the series started about that. And it got spicier. Pakistan made 196. Australia's just starting out on day two when Andrew Hilditch crashes into Graham Wood, his batting partner, gets knocked over and sprains his wrist. He retires hurt. They keep going. They get done over by Imran Khan. They're 29 runs behind with three wickets in hand when Rodney Hogg gets run out by Javed Mandad. And this is a, a cheeky run out where Rodney Hogg plays a forward defence. It, it's a no ball as well. He, he knocks it away to short leg and steps out of his pitch to knock down a divot on the wicket. But the ball is still live. It's just been hit to short leg. And so Javed Mandad at short leg pings it back onto the stumps and runs him out. And the umpires confer. They take a while to decide. Eventually they give it out. Hog cracks the shits and knocks the stumps over with his bat before he walks off. No. No. Right, Hog, no. No, no, no. Um, the model of temperament. So this obviously makes an impression on Alan Hurst, the fast bowler who comes in next. He's out for a golden duck, which means that, that Wood, sorry, as Wood was the one who sprained his wrist, not Hilditch. Graham Wood comes back, the opener for the 10th wicket. Uh, but Dav Watmore, who is the remaining batter who's uh, top scored with 42 to that point gets out having added only one more run so Australia already pissed off by the run out and they're more pissed off when they lose the test match Uh, Pakistan rack up the runs Australia's trying to chase 382 they're well in it they're 305 for three they only need 77 more with seven wickets in hand when Safraz Nawaz takes seven wickets for one run in 33 balls that's part of the nine for 86, which is still up on the wall, unfortunately, now with Alistair Cook uh, as the highest visiting score. Safraz has the highest visiting wicket performance at the MCG. And who knows, it may well be there forever. So Australia have lost the test. They're annoyed. The next test in Perth, in the third innings, Pakistan are building a lead. They're 213 in front when the number 11 comes out to bat. Sikandar Bakht. He joins Asif Iqbal, who has made a ton, and they're making more runs. They add another 22, and Australia are getting worried about the chase. And Sikander Bakht has been out there for 37 minutes. Alan Hurst runs him out at the non-striker's end, notices the number 11 having a little wander and knocks the bales off, one of the few times when that sort of dismissal has not been recalled in a test match. Uh-huh. Big, big kerfuffle, right? Pakistan, not happy. Australia are seeing it as retaliation, although the run out of Hogg was a different sort of run out uh, happening at the striker's end. And they're all legal. It's all fine. It all should have been fine. But Australia are chasing 236, which could have been more had this partnership not been a problem. They're going nicely. They've got an opening stand of 87 on the board. The whacker is improving. It's getting easier to bat. When... Graham Wood hits a ball to Sikander Bakht at cover. He has a throw at the non-striker's end and misses. The ball bounces wide, it rolls away, and Andrew Hilditch at the non-striker's end picks it up and hands it to Safras Nawaz, who takes the ball and then turns around to the umpire and appeals because a batter has handled the ball. He's given out. Oh. The, the only non-striker to ever be given out handled what? the ball. Yes. Uh, well... The, the appeal was not withdrawn and what? he was given out. So, yeah, at the non-striker's end. So uh, it didn't derail the chase. Rick Darling and Ellen Border made the runs and chased it three down. Uh, the score they chased was 236 and that was the nerd pledge number from Kieran Costello for a test match in which they had a run out at the non-striker's end and a handled the ball at the non-striker's end in the same match. Wow. I mean, 
I was vaguely familiar with with the Hurst uh, Mancad, but not about the Hilditch handled the ball. I mean, it just seems like that's thoroughly against the way that would be interpreted now. Like, I feel like an umpire wouldn't mm. give a player out handle the ball now uh, in I that think situation. They still have to. I mean, the the concept is that the ball belongs to the fielding side, and that yeah. if a batting player touches it, they could be doing something to it. So, say the ball's reverse swinging madly and the batting player picks it up with a sweaty glove on the rough side of the True. ball and True. kills the reverse swing. There's that sort of thing where it's like you you can't be sure that they haven't done something to the ball if they touch it. And so that's, as far as my understanding is, that's why they're not supposed to ever touch it for any reason, even to hand it back to a player. Yeah, yeah, that, that's quite rational. I, I, I take your point. Yeah, but what a great series that would have been to cover. Our, our great mate Rob Forsyth from AAP, uh, not called AAP anymore, is it? It's called um, something AP like AAP. It's, it's, it's got a new name now. Anyway, Robbie Forsyth, one of the great cricket writers in Australia and loves, loves it when it gets a bit stinky between the teams. Indeed, he's been known to throw the odd grenade in there to, to prompt a stink between teams. That would have been his dream come true, <laughs> covering mm-hmm. covering a test match with a fucking man cat, followed by a handle the ball. Robbie would have been in his element. So uh, <laughs> uh, looking forward to seeing him through the course of the summer. It was only a two-test series. That's the other thing. It didn't yeah. have room to get any spicier because that was the second and last test in the series. So God knows what would have happened if they played a third. <laughs> Hope you're listening, Robbie. We'll see you in a couple of weeks. Right, next up, Jeff, uh, we have Jai Prakash, 383. I don't remember exactly why, because it was a while ago, but I talked about the 1928 Ashes. It must have been the 28-29 I think ashes. I talked about it. 383 was a score, an inning score that was made in that crazy Adelaide test. Oh, yes, yes. Between England and Australia, yes, yes, where they, yes. they both made great... They both made 300-plus scores in every innings, and it ended up being a thriller. Yeah, absolutely. That, that's exactly what it was. And then I went back when he told... That's right. The, the first time we revisited it, it was put to us that it's a one-day-related stat. So I went with Kumar Sangakara's 383 catches in one-day cricket or the Australia-India game in 2013 where India made 383 and I think uh, mm-hmm. Rohit Sharma made a double ton, something like that. Now, now, Rohit Sharma made 209. James Faulkner made what was then the fastest Australian century in the chase. Glenn Maxwell made 60 from 20 balls, I think, or 22 balls. That I can't quite remember which one it was, but thereabouts. Faulkner made 100 from about 70 balls or 60-odd balls um, yeah. that was the fastest at the time. So Jaya Prakash has come back to us, Jeff. Yes, uh, saying that my nerd pledge has one thing in common to your suggestion, the Australia-India game from 2013, in that it was also a high-scoring innings. Now... I, I kept trudging through and I'm glad I reached a point when I stopped because, again, for the third time today, this is an answer that there is no way we would have got this right in a month of, in a month of Sundays. No, in a, in a lifetime of Sundays. Uh, Jaya Prakash acknowledges this. Ha, I guess it was a, this was a bit hard to find since this isn't the most important figure on a scorecard. This refers to the third ball of the 39th over in a one-dayer between South Africa and the West Indies at Johannesburg. Oh, um, I remember this game. And he adds that uh, Riley Rousseau is dismissed after his century. Riley, Riley, Riley. Riley, 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 Rousseau. Um, uh, he, and, and, I'm, and, and this gives me a chance to correct a record too. I said when talking about Delo's number that Riley Rousseau made 100 that day. Of course he didn't. Fatu Plessis 
made a big hundred against Ireland that day. Oh, um, but Riley made his century, his first century, in this game. And then AB de Villiers walks in and smacks 149 in 44 balls. As Jai Prakash says, I was out that day and I remember coming back, turning on the news and hearing about what AB had just done. I regret not watching it live so much. Of course, he goes on and repeats the dose against the West Indies in the World Cup a couple of months later when he completely destroyed Jason Holder's figures and life. Not life. Bit, bit of a stretch. Uh, I'll be working on a new nerd pledge then. I went back to Jai Prakash and said, if it's something that we can conceivably solve, that would be great. But if it's not something we're going to solve and he just wants us to tell an obscure story, that's fine too. Just give us a very, very strong nudge. But, um, Jeff, mm-hmm. uh, the, the, the AB 149 in 44 balls, you know, it's one of those things you kind of woke up to, wasn't it? And you're like, he's done what now? Like It, it, was, it, I, was, it was when he went I to the next level. I watch it. Oh, right. right. Be, being someone who's sometimes up at 4am for no particular reason... I watched that game and it was, yeah, the 100 was in 31 balls. They were doing their their charity fundraising thing in the pink uniforms um, and it was like, it was like De Villiers was hypnotising Jason Holder. It was like he, he would just stare at him and then move into position preemptively and Holder would bowl it to where De Villiers had moved to instead of bowling it at the stumps. There were times that he was hitting the ball from almost off the pitch outside off stump so he could lap it over his shoulder, over deep backward square leg for six. And Holder kept bowling it wider and wider of off stump instead of bowling at the stumps. It was extraordinary. And then, yeah, the same thing in that World Cup game. I think from memory, Jason Holder had eight overs, one for 38, and he ended up with 10 overs, one for 102. <laughs> his, his last two overs went for 64 runs, I'm pretty sure, a 30 and a 34. That's memory. Yeah, it was the floor of that World Cup where... I mean, and four they, players out. Yeah, the the four players out. That that was a real botching, wasn't it? Because it just meant with the three sixty game of T Twenty cricket had evolved into that. As a fielding captain, you had. I mean, the Windies did kind of everything right at the end. They had four out on the offside with Holder bowling two feet outside the off stump in the tram tracks, and De Villiers was just jumping on the floor and lapping it over his shoulder. I mean, yeah, you've got to be brilliant to pull it off, but you do need to be able to have protection on both sides of the field, and you get that now with the fifth player um, in the final 10 overs. But, yeah, that was bonkers. <laughs> Is that something you picked up from your umpire friend? It's important to have protection on both sides. Yeah, that, that was uh, – yeah, Paul Pollard t- told me that lesson. <laughs> Um, Okay, we have come to the end of the, not the new numbers, but the revisits. A couple of confirmations to run through because we do sometimes get these right. Amelia Vine said correct with the one we mentioned earlier of Robert Croft batting for 310 minutes. Thank you for telling the story of Crofty, who totally should have gone for a 50, says Amelia. Absolutely. He was, what, 46 not out, 44 not out? Yes. didn't have a tonk in that last over when the game was safe. Have a tonk, Crofty. Uh, Pat Rogers, the 321, said, yes, Billy Murdoch 321 versus the Vicks in 1881 at Sydney. Uh, He said... Thanks for the deep dive. Uh, Billy Murdoch received £200 in a public collection, a gold watch and a trophy in the form of a Maltese cross that was not a dog. Uh, (laughs) The first century by a New South Welshman in intercolonial cricket. Uh, The 321 was the highest at the SCG until Bradman's 340. And the trip to Cootamundra, which is also a link to Bradman, was because Billy was somehow living there and working as a solicitor. Was he a triple centurion knob? 
The Victorians certainly thought so as they boycotted the post-match banquet after he had made the triple hundred because of his criticism of the Victorian umpire. What a time to be playing cricket when the biggest scandal... Imagine what Robbie Forsyth would have made of players boycotting the post-match banquet (laughs) to protest against one of the other team. Spot on. Jeff, I should mention as well that Pat Rogers has a new book out, uh, a fabulous historian on the game. You've got a copy of it. We'll spend some more time talking about it next week. Yes, Jack Cuff is the DOB in question uh, in that book, which I've started to dip into and will hopefully finish soon. Uh, 419 was Dan Walsh. We said, well, Jeff said, uh, McGillah uh, at the SCG in a one-day against Pakistan in 2000. You nailed it, Jeff. Top-notch yarn. Nothing more to add beyond being in the Doug Walter stand that day. And it was the first and last time I've seen a barbecue chicken take flight. <laughs> That's a good memory of being in a food fight. My, my first memory of being at a one-day international in the Great Southern Stand. Indeed, it was the first international game of cricket in the Great Southern Stand in December '91 sitting on level two where my dad bought us the posh sheets that was very kind of him took me out of school I remember he rocked up at school at like I suppose it would have been about lunchtime and uh, he surprised me I've, I've told stories about my dad taking me away from sporting events early well this time he, he, he deserves credit for this he knew how to entertain a, a, a seven-year-old boy I suppose I was at the time six-year-old boy and he um, went into the school and told the teachers he was taking me out early to go to the MCG and he and I sat there and watched uh, Malcolm Marshall take four for 20 odd and then when Australia were all out there was a massive food fight between where, what was the old Bay 13 beneath where we were sitting and level two and I remember copping an orange to the face like square in the face, straight on the face, and being so exhilarated by the whole thing, even at that age, I'm like, this is fucking brilliant, that I picked up the orange and piffed it back towards Bay 13, and so it went. But, yes, uh, so wow. a good memory of uh, mine of a food fight at the MCG in December 91, real, which, uh, which I told, I told Dan I'd mention it. Simon Kadich areas there. I remember him being asked about whether he hated going into field at short leg, and, like... I've rarely seen this someone's face change so quickly. It was Bob Catterstyle. His face lit up, this huge smile, and he goes, oh, I loved it. I loved getting in there. You get hit by one early and you go, oh, I'm really in this. <laughs> That's the most Simon Kadich anecdote of all time. Love it. Absolutely love it. So uh, Xavier Bochat said 129 is indeed the score that England got bowled out for on Amazing Adelaide on the final day. A great day to be an Australian cricket fan, he says. Also a very forgetful day to be an English cricket fan. Uh, Also the day I graduated from primary school as a side note. Well... (laughs) That also makes me feel quite old, Xavier. So thank you for that. One zero zero. Sean Tunza Tun said yes. Ian Harvey, the first ever T Twenty Century. Thank you for sharing your story too, Adam. The freak was my favourite cricketer growing up. So naturally, I copied his out of the back of the hand slower ball at training. His brother Craig would always pick it and smash me out of the nets. True to his philosophy of there's more space in the air. I look forward to submitting another Victorian-themed nerd pledge. Well, you can keep submitting them. We'll keep adding them to the list. We'll keep making the show. Uh, thank you. Tons of, tons of fun. Uh, 147, Tony King. We eventually got to Shaggy Udall's 147, but we got the answer wrong. I said 147 list day boundaries. And Tony said he really enjoyed our second attempt at the number, but it was actually in relation to his first innings bowling figures on Test Boo 1 for 47. In hindsight, given how closely I interrogated those scorecards, I, I can't believe I missed that, but, but so it goes. Mm. 8.55, which was meant to be 
327, Alistair Townsend. Jeff Strange said, things can happen when you're putting the numbers in. Yes, Jeff said Craig White's hat-trick for Yorkshire eventually. Uh, Alistair said, uh, we thanked us uh, for telling the lovely story of Craig White. And he apologises again for the mix-up over the actual number. I think I submitted it late at night during lockdown, possibly after one or two too many whiskies. So it's a, an Anna Forsyth homage there by sending through a few too many dollars. But thank you for it. And also thank you, Alistair, for arranging to get those Brazil shirts sent out to Jeff and I. Um, we mentioned that on the uh, weekly show, the Brazil playing shirts and the Brazil caps that I'll be bringing back to Australia when I fly. Well, I'll be flying. When this episode's already published, I'd imagine. I, I leave it not mm-hmm. early in the morning on Saturday, which is roughly when this ep goes live. And one last, oh, the penultimate revisit was Debashish. Uh, Jeff, you told the story of Tufty Man. And Debashish uh, thanks you for bringing that story to life. I am delighted to confirm this is correct. And our last revisit for today is from Debashish. Uh, Jeff, you told the story of Tufty Man, and Debashish loved uh, hearing that brought to life by you, and he's delighted to confirm it is correct. That's all of the revisits and all of the confirmations. We're more or less up to date uh, as I mm-hmm. prepare to uh, get on that plane. And we will hook into the new numbers. So if you're a first-time new number person, you're probably about three months down the line. And if you've edited the number, you're uh, a a ways longer than that. But we'll do our best to plough through as much as we can while still telling the best stories we can. If you want to put in a number, a new number for story time, or uh, we do one on the weekly show as well, and then a bunch on the weekend, very easy, patron.com slash the final word. If you do that, you will help us keep making the show. We'll be doing daily shows for the Ashes. We've got, we're putting a huge amount of time into the final word, so everybody who supports it is a massive help, and we would greatly appreciate you jumping in there. And you also stand a roughly 1 in 4 to 1 in 4.5 chance of being the person who gets to give away a slab of Brick Lane to somebody. So why not? Why not? Uh, you can also get discount tickets to our live shows. Um, those discount links, will they, they should be up by the time this show goes out, actually. So keep an eye out for those as well if you're on the Patreon. Yeah, tell your friends as well about the live shows. As I said before, the, the Melbourne tickets will probably sell quite quickly, so getting there nice and early and Adelaide as well is going to be a cracker. All that information in the show notes for 13 and 14 December, Melbourne and Adelaide respectively. Uh, this has been the final word stories, Hi, uh, I've enjoyed uh, taking my mind away from other matters and back to cricket for a while. It's been great. I also mm-hmm. can't wait to, to get home and get on that plane, uh, albeit um, 24 hours on a flight with Winnie, Probably won't be much fun, but she's a good egg, so I'm sure that it won't be too chaotic. Although, this will probably be a full plane, won't it? Because we're Mm. into Darwin, a direct flight to Darwin, if you don't mind, and then to Sydney thereafter. But this must be one of those flights where people are trying to get home for Christmas and and, and so on. So this Mm. might be sort of 300 people um, scrapping it out with Winnie for attention, which might not be ideal. (laughs) Well, she's walking, she's talking, and it's going to be a whole lot of fun for you. (laughs) Enjoy that. Um, Yep, enjoy that very much indeed. It has been the final word. We'll be back with the weekly show. It should be out on a Wednesday this coming week, I think. And, you know, we'll have we'll have more tales for you on Storytime on coming weekends. Thanks for joining us. Jeff Lemon, Adam Collins. We'll see you later. Have a nice weekend. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. I had to fail, had to fall just for what I did well. And there's some stories I can tell you.
Thanks for listening to the Final Word Cricket Podcast. All of Adam and Jeff's previous episodes are available at finalwordcricket.com, including Storytime 20. That's 40 story times ago. 40. Almost a year's worth of nerd pledge. Why Storytime 20? Because it features comedian Will Anderson. It's a great chat. I think you're going to love it. Finalwordcricket.com for all things Final Word. And thanks once again to our friends at Brick Lane Brewing. Shop online at bricklanebrewing.com. Thanks for listening. More from Adam and Jeff real soon.